All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into GoodRanchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick and to get that deal and let's get on with the show. We have all heard the phrase that violence doesn't solve anything. What I find so interesting is that in more and more of our discussions, a lot of people seem to think that violence solves everything and they don't even realize it. We're going to talk about that today on Making the Argument, where we make the arguments to defend a free society. Okay, now, all of us have that friend or that acquaintance that likes to, in the words of my wife, should all over you, right? No matter what you're doing, whether it's at work, whether it's at play, they've got something that you should do. They've always got an idea of whatever you think you know or whatever you think you should be doing, they've got some sort of improvement, right? Some sort of special insight, knowledge, or expertise that you should use in order to adjust everything else that you do about your life. And in most cases, this person is mildly annoying, whether it may, again, be that friend, that coworker, maybe a family member, and you tolerate this because at the end of the day, they're offering advice, and maybe they have the best intentions. Maybe they're even a reasonably intelligent person. But I want you to imagine waking up tomorrow, and now that person that always has advice for how you should live your life has the legal authority and power to compel you to do whatever they think you should do. That changes the dynamic very significantly. So let's go into this whole question of how we make decisions and more specifically, what mechanisms should we use to solve problems? Now, when I'm debating with a colleague in the Virginia House of Delegates, or I'm talking to a friend of mine that maybe is left of center, here's what I usually hear, that all they want is quality healthcare for everybody. All they want is for everyone to get a quality education. All they want is for everyone to be able to have the basic necessities to be able to enjoy their life. All they want is greater equity within society, greater equality within society. And here's what I find interesting. Nobody disagrees with that. I don't know a single person, uh, despite where you are on the political spectrum, that doesn't want everybody to have a measure of happiness and freedom and access to products and services in order to make their life better. All of us agree on this, and yet we get into nothing but controversial debates about these very topics. Why is that? Well, ultimately it's because when somebody is telling you that all they want is quality healthcare, quality education, basic necessities, et cetera, et cetera, that is an end state. Those are objectives, and they're objectives we all agree on. The pivotal question is, how do you plan to actually achieve those objectives? 
And I actually got in a floor debate with somebody who was defending socialism about this very topic because the way that they were defining their policy decisions was not based off of the intricacies on what they actually intended to carry out to make all of these wonderful objectives a reality. No, they just wanted to talk about their intentions and an eventual end state where we would all be happy and satisfied and wealthy and prosperous and healthy and equal. But the devil, as they say, is in the details and how you plan to achieve those things is very important. And so that's what we need to discuss is it's not just the end states, not just the objectives. How do you plan to achieve them? And here's what I have found in almost every single instance with, with very limited exceptions to the rule. Here's what these things mean. Quality healthcare equals nationalized medicine. That means the government is essentially controlling your healthcare. Basic necessities of life or maybe someone paying their fair share is always used to justify either more taxation or redistribution of wealth or the confiscation of somebody else's property in order to give it to somebody that somebody else thinks is more deserving. What about a quality education? Well, when they say quality education, what they typically mean is a government financed and controlled educational system that you are required by law to attend unless you can afford an alternative. What about things like a clean environment? All we want is to have clean water and, and to breathe clean air. Okay, great, but how do you plan to do it? Well, through the government restriction and regulations on industry, combined with restrictions on property rights, not to mention the massive subsidization of green energy plans like windmills or um, solar panels. What about things where we're talking about people being treated equitably within society? Well, equity simply means a fair and just system, but oftentimes when you hear them describing what they want to do to achieve equity, they're actually talking about equality of outcomes. So this has to do with everything from regulations and taxation to quotas based off of whether or not they envision some sort of oppressor and oppressed system within society. So in every solution that is being offered, there is one unique feature more government power and control. So no matter what it is, from education to healthcare to the environment, the solution always seems to be rooted in a basic presupposition. And that presupposition is if the government had more power and the right people were running the government, then we could achieve all of the things that we all agree are positive end states. The question is, is this true? So Unless we've all decided that the best way to solve problems that we all agree are problems or that we all agree are challenges within life, if the best way to achieve the sort of objectives that we all tend to agree on is by giving politicians a lot more power, well, then we can pretty much just stop here and implement that kind of system. The problem is, is that I don't think that's the best way. And the real question we have to ask ourselves is how do we engage with people that honestly see these different issues and challenges as something that they want to address in good faith, but have become convinced that the only way to do it is through more government control and power. And if we're going to do that, we can't simply point out the flaws or the perceived flaws in their argument. We have to actually provide alternatives. Now, the most common conservative argument when somebody is suggesting that if only we had more government programs or more government intervention, we could achieve these noble end states 
is for us to say that, well, practically this doesn't make a lot of sense. And history is replete with all kinds of examples. We can point to everything from, you know, Soviet Russia to communist Cuba, socialist Venezuela. We can point to other governments that are not necessarily socialist or communist, but have a lot more influence on the economy or personal decisions. And we can point to all of the different ways that that sort of government power failed to deliver on its promises, or in some cases achieved the exact opposite of what it promised to do. And when we bring up these examples, it's totally relevant. There's nothing wrong with bringing them up. The problem is, is that someone on the left will oftentimes respond with, well, the reason why that program didn't work is because it wasn't executed correctly. Or the reason why that agency didn't achieve its end states is because the wrong people were running it. Or maybe they didn't have enough power to implement what they actually needed to do. Maybe they didn't have enough resources or tax revenue to actually carry out the objective in a way that if they had had those things, it would have worked beautifully. Right, so every time we make this purely practical argument for why government doesn't do something well, it leaves the door open for them to make the counter argument that, well, with the right people, with enough money, with enough resources, with enough power, it would have turned out differently. And so what I want to explore today is a different type of argument with respect to this question on how do we solve problems. And I want to start this out by sharing a story with you. So I was on a plane. And what you need to understand is that God in his infinite wisdom and sense of humor has decided that whenever I get on a plane, I will be seated next to somebody that desperately wants to talk politics with me and has completely different worldview than I do. So as you can imagine, as I'm stuck in this metal tube hurling through the atmosphere for two, three, four, five hours, this can get kind of uncomfortable at times if you're not able to have a productive conversation with somebody. And so I'm, I'm sitting on this plane, right? And this, this woman starts a conversation with me and it starts off with the usual pleasantries, right? Sharing your names, talking maybe about family or particular interests. And she immediately moves the conversation into politics. And it's not really a direction I wanna go because planes are actually a time that I have to usually rest, not have to think about heavy, weighty political issues. But she's, she's a very nice person and she's very well educated, two PhDs, she's a college professor. But she starts the conversation of politics off with, I really love Bernie Sanders. And I'm thinking to myself, of course, this is how it had to be, but how do I engage and how do I have a discussion with this person that is productive and polite? And here's what I noticed. As she was describing all the reasons why she liked Bernie Sanders or why she approved of progressive politics, there was a common theme. And that common theme was about addressing problems that we actually all agreed were problems and then providing end states that we all agreed were appropriate, noble, or good end states. The devil, again, was in the details of how do you actually get from identifying a problem, developing a solution, carrying it out, and getting to the appropriate end state. And what I noticed was every answer that she had to the questions that we were asking always includes some sort of government involvement, some sort of government program, agency, tax, regulation, rule restriction that was going to be able to get us closer to that end state. And she even acknowledged that it wasn't always to be perfect at times, but this was the route, this was the path that we would use to get to where we both wanted to go. And as I was listening to her explain this, I finally stopped her and I said, you know, you and I have actually agreed on the problems. We're trying to address issues of sickness, poverty, violence, war. And we've actually agreed on the end states. We want people to be happy, healthy, prosperous, and free. So no disagreement on the problems, no disagreement on the objectives. I said, the primary difference between your approach and mine is that you're a lot more comfortable with violence than I am.
Now, as you can imagine, sitting next to a very well-educated, progressive college professor, the idea that I would suggest that it was the liberal or the progressive that was the violent one and that I was the peaceful one was something that she found incredibly confusing, not to mention a little bit offensive. And so she asked me to explain. And I said, well, let me give you an example. I said, Louisiana floods because of a hurricane. And both of us are watching what is happening on the television. And both of us are thinking to each other, oh my gosh, we've got to help these people. We have a duty, whether it's based off of your faith or just your basic sense of humanity, that you want to go down and you want to provide some sort of assistance to people in need. I said, so I see this and I think to myself, oh my gosh, we need to either send resources or we need to volunteer, we need to provide money or provide equipment or whatever it is. And I go to you and I say, you know what, you see all this suffering that's taking place. This is what I'm doing to help. Would you like to join me? And maybe you say, Nick, that's a great idea. Where do I write a check? Or or maybe you say, Nick, that's a great idea. I want to go down there because I have skill sets that are uniquely relevant to the needs that these people have. Or maybe you say, Nick, I really appreciate what you're doing, but I actually want to help in a different way. No matter what answer you give me, you get to leave the conversation in peace. You can choose to cooperate with me, or you can choose to do something entirely different. But in no way am I forcing you to do what I think you should. I said, you see that same environment. You see that same crisis. And you come to me and you say, Nick, there's people suffering. We need more government entities. We need more government agencies. We need more programs to go in there and actually help these people. And the way that we're going to do that is I'm going to raise your taxes. Or I'm going to confiscate something that you already have in order to help these people in need. I said, what happens if I say no? If I say no, you're going to come up to me and you're going to deprive me of liberty or property as a consequence of not trying to address the problem the same way you did. It's not that I don't want to help. It's not that I'm not willing to help. But you're not asking me if I want to help. You're telling me that if I don't address the problem the same way you want, you will punish me. How do you square that with the idea that you are a tolerant person? And to her credit, she looked at me and she said, I have never thought of it that way before. And I would submit to you that that is the problem that we have in all of our discussions about these issues with respect to what government should do, what government shouldn't do, is that we're ignoring the fundamental question that it's not just merely a question of implementation. How would the government carry out this particular process? It's really a question that is far more fundamental, and that is, What makes a government approach to something unique from a private or a voluntary approach to something? And the answer to that question is coercion, violence or the threat of violence. Whenever we take a problem, whenever we take a challenge, even if it's one that we all agree on, and we say, we are now going to put this into the hands of a government body in order to solve, we need to understand that what we're really doing in that moment is we're making a choice. And what we're essentially saying is that We have so little confidence in the ability or the compassion of free people to work together in order to solve problems that we now want to hand over control to a group of politicians and bureaucrats to make the decision for us. They're going to be the ones to decide what is the most effective and efficient way in order to alleviate suffering or in order to provide for health or prosperity or education or whatever else it might be. And what's so interesting about this 
is that it's not just that basic reliance upon violence in order to solve problems, but that when you do that, you also inevitably hand over a degree of control to the government that is now taken away from everybody else. Because the government sometimes will go to the extreme of saying that this is our responsibility and no one else is allowed to participate. And what you've done in that sense, what you've done in that sort of environment is you've cut down, you've eliminated all of the creativity and innovation that would have taken place within the private sector in order to address that problem. In other cases, they may allow the private sector to continue to operate, but because they're constantly pulling resources and making new regulations, the realm of creativity and innovation that is allowed to take place within the private sector has been significantly diminished because what we've said is we have more faith in politicians to solve this for this for us than we do in ourselves to work together to address issues. And this creates a huge moral problem. Because whenever we do this, we've essentially surrendered not only essential rights or liberty or private or innovation or creativity, but we've admitted to ourselves that we have so little faith in free people that we're willing to hand it over to people that are ultimately going to rely on violence and coercion in order to achieve an objective. And then so often we're surprised when that sort of coercion doesn't achieve what we thought it should. And if we can reframe the argument, if we can reframe this not about simply saying that, well, the government cannot efficiently carry this out, or the government has a bad track record of achieving this, but if we can get down to that fundamental starting point where we say that the reason why the government is doing this is not simply because the right people were not in charge. It's not because they didn't have money. It's not because they didn't have enough resources. But because they were relying on coercion, a top-down approach which tells somebody, sit down, shut up, and do as you're told. Versus an alternative where literally thousands, millions, even billions of people can work together toward different objectives, different ways of meeting a need. Because when you look at all the issues that they're trying to solve through government, when it comes to healthcare, different people have different needs, wants, and desires. When it comes to education, people have different objectives for what they want to do with the knowledge that they're going to actually access with an education in order to go out and achieve other things. When, when it talks about individual rights, when it talks about freedom of the press, when we talk about all these different issues, the key component is freedom of inquiry and the ability to use my own talents and abilities as I determine appropriate to achieve those objectives to not only benefit myself, but to benefit my family, my community, and my country. Why would we ever hand that over to a political elite that is now going to compel us by law to do it the way they want it done? And do we really imagine that by handing something over to such a coercive way in order to make decisions is not going to be prone to corruption? Do, do we really imagine that anywhere within the human population, we will find that perfect individual that amidst all of that power and control will not be tempted to use it for abusive reasons? Even if they don't think that that, even if that's not their original intention. Have we really gotten to the point where, where we mistrust people with freedom so much that the only solution that we can imagine is to take it away from them and give power into the hands of a smaller elite that will then govern all of them? If we can't trust the population in general with freedom, how in the world are we going to trust people selected from that population with such immense power and control?
So the red pill component of this entire argument when we talk about is it violence or voluntarism is not just the practical considerations. We must start with the moral consideration and the idea that any time that we're going to take away individual options and choices and all of the different cooperation and creativity that comes from a result of that, the marketplace of ideas, and simply hand it off to a political elite, we are starting with violence. We are choosing coercion and violence over voluntarism and cooperation. And we should not be surprised when that produces bad results. But if you can get someone to start to imagine this entire argument within a completely different paradigm, to where this is not a major disagreement between the problems, this is not a major disagreement between left and right on the outcomes. This is fundamentally a disagreement on how we get there and specifically, do we get there through peaceful means and cooperation or do we get there through threats, coercion, and violence? Because I would suggest to you that once we've selected coercion as the primary means for solving problems, that actually does a lot to explain not only why we're not getting to where we want to get, but why we see so much disunity and incivility within our political discourse. Because when you and I can sit down and identify a problem, and we're free to discuss it, and we're free to determine the areas that we agree on, and in those areas that we agree on, we work together and cooperate. And in those areas where which we disagree, we're both free to try different things. Then there's no reason for disunity between us. There's no reason for discord between us. We work together when we agree. And we work separately when we do not. But if every time we identify a problem, this becomes a decision on who's going to force the other person to do what they want, well, then the political stakes become so much higher and you can expect nothing less than the people to break down, not simply in feelings of mistrust, but eventually in another form of violence. Because if the only option I am left with is you will do what I say when I tell you to do it, and if I insist on living as a free person, then inevitably at some point you leave me with no other course of action but then to resist you. So the thing that I would encourage everyone to do is they're looking at these issues. As these issues come up, regardless of what it is, healthcare, taxes, regulations, education, transportation, etc., the fundamental question that you need to start with is not just the, the practical considerations with respect to execution, but what sort of means are you using in order to achieve your end state? Because if it is relying upon coercion and violence, then there is a moral problem at the very beginning of your argument that the other side needs to address before we can move on from there. And I'll share one more story to close this all out. I was talking with a room full of students and these students had some incredible ideas for how they wanted to address a whole host of issues on the topics we've discussed today. Whether it was cleaning up the environment, whether it was providing jobs for people, whether it was providing additional educational opportunities, whether it was ensuring access to quality healthcare, they had a number of ideas. And this one student approaches me and they say, this is the idea that I think we should implement in order to achieve this objective. And I said, you know what? That sounds like a great idea. I find the argument that you've made to be very, very compelling. I said, so what would you like to do? Would you like to start a business? Would you like to start a nonprofit? Would you like to just start a, a Facebook group and get like-minded people together in order to start implementing your plan? And what they said was, well, no, I want a law. 
And I immediately looked back at them and I said, okay, so the one you're really asking me is, will I create the conditions where people are forced to do what you want them to do? And the second question is, is how should we punish them if they don't? And the student looked at me and their jaw dropped. And I said, that's what you need to understand about the paradigm, about the method of solving problems that you are selecting. You are relying on force. It doesn't mean that your idea or the mechanisms that you have, it doesn't mean that the, the intricacies or the details of what you want to do is bad. But can you not at least try to convince people through voluntary cooperation before you resort to compelling them by force to do what you want? Do you really believe that your idea is so good that it has to be mandated and that people should be punished if they don't comply? Or do you think it's possible that somebody else out there might have an equally good idea and or a different way to address the problem that will address other issues in a way that you didn't anticipate? Should we shut them down? Should we punish them because they haven't adopted your solution? And thankfully their answer was, well, no, I didn't intend that. And I think that's one of the biggest problems that we have when we're talking to people, especially people that are not necessarily entrenched in a political camp. They see a problem and they very genuinely want to be able to address it. And they have the best of intentions. So we need to dissuade them from choosing the violent option. But on the other side, provide that alternative. What is the business they could start? What is the organization they could start? What is the community group that they could get together? where they could work with others, share ideas, and address a problem relying on the voluntary cooperation of free people, not coercion delivered by a political elite. So try that the next time that you're talking to somebody. Before the argument goes down a thousand different rabbit holes on what sort of policies would be implemented and who would pay for it and, and, and how it would be executed and who would be in charge, just ask them, is there a way that we could actually address this problem peacefully and through voluntary action before we have to resort to coercion and see where the conversation leads? Thank you for joining us on this episode of Making the Argument, and we'll see you next time. Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to GoodRanchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions, and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, GoodRanchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to GoodRanchers.com, use promo code Nick, and once again, thank you for listening.